Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These haunting and familiar lines begin Psalm 22, our psalm reading this evening. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we see despair up close, in powerful, gut-wrenching clarity, the utter despair of loneliness, isolation, physical pain, humiliation, and the perceived absence of God. We hear this echoed, too, in the reading from Job, the feeling that God has abandoned him. What strikes me most in this psalm is the material, bodily nature of despair. Some of the most powerful words for me in this psalm are those last lines. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Whew. In my current work as a hospital chaplain, I see the material evidence of despair every day. The sweat mixed with tears, mixed with dirt, that makes the plastic hospital gown stick to the skin. The body shaking with sobs that cannot be soothed. The parched lips unable to be moistened by a tongue that must be dabbed with a sponge for relief. The material of a human body in despair can be a force to be reckoned with. It is no surprise that while I get a lot of requests for Psalm 23, our next psalm in the Psalter, in my visits, visits with patients, it has its comforting assurance that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. There's no, no assurance of comfort at first blush in this psalm, in Psalm 22. And I've never had anyone ask for Psalm 22 at the hospital bedside. People in the hospital are often living its realities. It hits too close to home. Yet it was Psalm 22 that I turned this past Saturday after I was shaken by a particularly tough visit, a hospital shift that literally cracked my heart open. On my bus ride home, I turned to my phone in a vain attempt to distract myself from the pain of the hospital. As I don't know about you, but as I often do, I find myself scrolling to try to kind of numb myself from the pain sometimes. And I scrolled through the various horrifying news of our aching world. Another hurricane, more lives lost, 
alongside news of a report on climate change that says we have underestimated the rate and severity at which we are killing our world. Alongside an article about how in hurricanes it is the poor that suffer long after the floodwaters recede and the news cameras leave. I got home that day and I fell apart. I'm generally a pretty resilient person, but there was something about the confluence of events that day, the severity of the pain in the hospital and the severity of the pain in our world, just cracked me open. I cried for half an hour. And so knowing I was preaching on this text, I turned to Psalm 22. I read it aloud, alone in my bedroom. My God, my God, why have you forsaken us? Where are you in the bleakness of this world? I could lie and tell you that I immediately felt better, that scripture magically served as a balm to my pain, but alas, it doesn't quite work like that. But one thing I did know to be true in that moment from reading those words, I am not alone. People have been feeling the despair of God's absence for millennia. Scripture, like faith, does not protect us from the hurt of the world. It does not tell us that everything is going to be magically okay. Instead, it offers a reminder that we are not alone. Whatever we are feeling, whatever the highest highs or the lowest lows, someone else, somewhere at some time, has felt it before and is probably feeling it now. And in this recognition, we find empathy and solidarity, and we find hope. And the remarkable thing about both of these texts is that even when we feel God's absence, in God's abandonment of the psalmist and of Job, both writers in their crying out to God still assume God's presence. The very question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is there to question. Even in our despair, faith calls us to know that God is here with us. So why does God allow us to feel despair? This is one of the age-old, probably unanswerable questions of faith. I think it probably has something, like most things in our faith and in scripture, has something to do with love. I believe that to love something is to see it fully. If we don't see the world clearly, in all of its pain alongside all of its joys, how can we love the world as God calls us to do? Which brings us to our gospel reading for tonight. Let's start with the question that a man with many possessions asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I will remind you that Jesus' time, like our own, was a time of vast wealth disparity, time of the Roman Empire. Archaeological remains, and I've been lucky enough to study the archaeology of the New Testament, around modern-day Judea and Galilee, they show us these exquisite mosaic flooring of wealthy people's homes. 
next to these beautiful fountains of marble and these exquisite places where gardens would have been and pools for private bathing. On the other hand, what's left of poor people is pretty little. We don't have very many artifacts of the poor. Their lives were built with dirt and mud and wood. It turns out the remains of the rich outlast the remains of the poor. We also know that the lives of the poor, like today, were shorter, harder materially, and more miserable than the lives of the rich. Material wealth then, like today, protected people's bodies from the despair of poverty. And amidst all this disparity and despair around him, the rich man wants eternal life. Jesus is pretty clear in his response. Go, sell what you own, give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And then the kicker. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Pastors throughout history have wrestled with this text, sidestepping around its very radical demands, trying to understand how to read it. What I see is Jesus calling the rich man to be laid low, to wake up to the despair around him in a way that demands radical solidarity with his poor neighbors. Jesus calls us into relationship with one another to clear away the things that we build to protect ourselves from despair. Jesus calls us lovingly to look despair in the eye, to sit with it, to feel it, and to feel solidarity with our brothers and sisters, and to have our hearts broken open as we begin to see the world more fully. In the kingdom of God, You can't wall yourself off from your brothers and your sisters. It would be irresponsible, I think, to not disclose here that I grew up in a wealthy family, in a wealthy community. I know and love a lot of wealthy people, and I have tremendous gratitude for the opportunities my upbringing gave me. And I want to recognize that there's a tendency in our Christian faith to glorify suffering and poverty to an extent, I think, that can be harmful. My experience in the hospital has shown me the insidious way that poverty today makes its way into people's bodies. Unequal opportunities to access and accrue wealth and to receive good health care, that kills people. I see people die in the hospital from things that I know I will never die from. We strive to build wealth, I think, to protect ourselves from the material feelings of despair. And it can, to some extent, work. Yet I also know that the accrual of wealth in my family corresponded with more family turmoil and separation. And I've experienced in wealthy communities a profound spiritual emptiness, a marked particular scent of loneliness and isolation, a very different kind of despair, but despair nonetheless. When we wall ourselves off from material despair in big houses or gated communities, we also wall ourselves off from one another. 
we don't see the world fully. I believe the obsession for more material wealth blocks us from opportunities for love. Instead of turning away from despair, Jesus in this text calls us to turn toward one another, to turn towards God. And of course, it is Jesus who models for us in the most radical way what it means to not wall yourself off from despair. Many of you may recognize that Psalm 22, those lines, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the very prayer he utters on the cross. In his own act of radical empathy, he comes right into the heart of despair in an execution alongside the lowest of a low on the, in an execution on the order of an empire. And he feels that very bodily material despair of limbs out of joint and a parched, dry mouth. He doesn't die on the cross to protect us from despair. He dies to be with us in it, to remind us that God is with us even in our lowest moment. So where's the good news? To be honest, I was struggling ending the sermon. That's why I came in late. Like, where is the good news? I mean that quite literally. But as I was thinking about it and thinking about this text, I was thinking about the prayers we do here at Richmond Hill. And one of my favorite prayers is where we ask God to help us be a part of the, of the coming of the kingdom of God here in metropolitan Richmond. That's always one of the most powerful prayers for me. As we work to follow Jesus' lead, to lessen wealth inequality, to bear witness to the despair that it brings, let us remember that God is with us and that nothing is impossible for God. Amen.